0: Um, with that being said, guys, grab uh, a Bible this morning, and uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 17. I'll be verses 16 through 22, and uh, I am, I'm leaving so much on the table. This is maybe, maybe my favorite uh, part of uh, all of the book of Acts, and uh, that includes Pentecost and everything. It's really an intense, uh, exciting section. So let me just recap for you what's happened. Um, Paul's on his second missionary journey. He's with uh, now Silas, not Barnabas. He's got a new companion in Timothy, and they're sort of making their way through um, a new continent, which is Europe. And they find themselves in the region of uh, Greece. And so um, last week, we we, we saw them come through uh, Thessalonica and Berea. And we saw how Paul reasoned from the Scripture to make his case that Jesus is Lord. He's the Christ. He's the fulfillment. And he's doing this in the synagogues because they have the same framework. They have the same foundation, right? We're all starting from the same starting block. And so he uses the Old Testament scriptures, when he has the ability to do that with the Jews. But now he's gonna um, show us, I said there's two groups of people, right? There's people that have that starting point and then there's everybody else, right? Which is just called the pagans. And it doesn't mean you're as bad as you can be. It just means you're not familiar with the promises of scripture. And so that's a lot of people. And we'll see how Paul approaches that same message without that same foundation to work from. And um, I I think uh, it would help us to sort of back up for just a second and instead of saying what your church answer would be, I want you to think about what the, the, that, that primer question that we left you with, which is what? What is, what is mankind, in a general sense, what are they searching for, satisfaction for? Like, what, what is it that is inherent in us that we kind of come into life, and though we have, you know, if we're provided with uh, shelter and food and water and we've air to breathe and all those things, that doesn't actually lead us to contentment. We're still like looking for something else, okay? And if you're trying to put a pin in one single thing, you wouldn't be able to do it because it's kind of spread across a a series of um, different things that we look to to try and fulfill this longing in our hearts, right? This longing for satisfaction. And um, humans are uh, endowed with Something that nothing else in creation has, which is the, the image of God. We are, we are given something specific. And among other things, what that does for us is it gives us a, an ability to create, to solve problems based on our our desires. Um, how many of you guys watch the show Shark Tank? Or, or at least know of the show Shark Tank, okay? Well, what happens on Shark Tank is just a, a show, and people bring their little ingenious inventions or things that they come up with that... Um, and they're pitching uh, to these sharks that are going to invest in their specific ideas. But it's always an interesting thing to see what somebody has come up with to solve some issue that you didn't even either know was an issue or to improve some situation that you didn't think needed to be improved. And yet, it's just like, oh, wow, well, I never would have thought of that. And so you can see the creativity of humans to solve a problem, right? To, to, to see that there's, like, something that could be done and to kind of in their own minds and kind of create something. Now, Scripture says... That what that thing is inside of us that, like, wants satisfaction, it's, a, it's, this, it's the itch that we want to scratch, and so we find a lot of different ways to do that. Job says, or, or excuse me, not Job, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon says that God has put eternity into the hearts of man. That inside of you is an awareness of something that's transcendent while simultaneously you're aware of your own limitations, okay? Let me say that again because that was a mouthful, Okay? We're aware, somehow outside of us, there's more than material universe and existence. And we, we get the concept of transcendence, that there's more than this life I live and die. And there's a desire to, to, like, know that or to matter more than matter, okay? And that's the longing that we're trying to all figure out, that we're all trying to scratch that itch. I think I have this for you. This is out of the Amplified Bible. It's that same Ecclesiastes 3, verses 11. And I like the Amplified Bible sometimes because it gives, in parentheses, an expansion of the thought. So it says this, that God has made, he has made everything beautiful and appropriate in its time, and he has also planted eternity. And then it says there, that eternity, that planting is a sense of divine purpose. In the human heart, which is that mysterious longing which nothing under the sun can satisfy. So, this longing that we have, without the knowledge that God is the thing that actually satisfies it, Leaves us up to our own devices. And so the case I'm going to make this morning is left to your own devices. You can and do find lots of ways to try and fill that hole. Okay, it's in your heart. You, you want to matter. You want to transcend. And God is the only thing that really scratches that itch. But we fill it with all kinds of other things, whatever it is that we can get our hands on. And here's the rest of this verse. Yet man cannot find out or comprehend or grasp what God has done. His overall plan from the beginning to the end. So this is our limitation. So that we're aware of the transcendent. And we also know that, there, that we don't, we're not transcendent. Right? And we can't, we can't kind of bridge that gap on our own. And um, so this morning we're, we're getting into the, the matter of idolatry. And uh, if you were with us through um, the Exodus series. Now I know that was a long time ago. Now you, you forgot it all. I could teach it again and, uh, and, and uh, make preparations. But Exodus has a lot to do with idolatry. And so when we think about idolatry, we sort of think about really the very, very concrete version of it, which is somebody prostrating before some kind of statue, wooden or gold or something like that. But that's not really the, the fullness of what idolatry is. Idolatry is simply anything that we look to for satisfaction for our hearts other than God. Right? If God is the only thing that fills the eternal hole, Anything else that you try to shove in that hole is going to be an effort to take the place of God. Therefore, you're taking something less than God and you're using it to do what only God is meant to do. And so with that in mind this morning, I want to uh, pray for our time in the Word and then uh, we'll just walk through it together and see what the Lord would have for us. Father, I pray this morning that you um, would honor what you say, that your Word does not return void. And so as we have gathered to um, be together with one another, but also to um, come humbly before your word, that it would um, just declare what is true, and uh, let every other philosophy, every idea, every invention that we've come up with, just um, be seen for what it is, which is just trinkets and and um, false hopes. Uh, so, Father, I just pray that you would speak, that it would be your words and not mine this morning, that would edify us, that would grow us, encourage us, build us up, give us what we don't have, which is the ability to discern what's true in the midst of um, a lot of chaos in the world. So give us eyes to see those things and ears to hear them. Father, give us the heart flesh. You can speak spirit, spirit things to us and fill us with life. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we'll just take it verse by verse. So I'm going to pick it up in verse 16, something like the heading of Paul in Athens. May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring, these, you, you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except for telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. Would you just skip all the way back to that first slide on verse sixteen? Thank you. All right. So uh, verse sixteen sees uh, Paul arriving in Athens. Uh, Athens is the the cultural metroplex of the day. It is a cosmopolitan city. It is um, has was the cradle of philosophies. You guys know Socrates and Aristotle and. Obviously, uh, Epicurus and many, many have, uh, have fed into the intellectual kind of like high point of the world or Greece at that point. And so, um, Paul is arriving in the city and he's sort of, um, remember, he's, he's making his escape. He's not actually, it wasn't a, a destination that he had put on the map as a place to go. He had, he had been escorted out of, uh, of Berea because the Jews from Thessalonica had kind of chased him out. And so, he had sent word, hey, uh, you know, send... Um, Silas and Timothy, as soon as you can. And so he's kind of just waiting around in the city. And um, so what it says here is that while he's in Athens, he's waiting for them. His spirit is provoked because he sees that the city is chock full of idols. It's been observed by uh, one historian that Athens had more idols in it than men, okay? And so if you get a sense of just the total inundation that Paul is experiencing, sorry, I'm kind of feeding back here, um, and, and so the question here is, what do, you, what do you see? Like, when you look at the world, when you look at culture at large, and you're kind of like asking, what is it that men is searching for in satisfaction? What are they trying to put in that hole of eternity? And whatever the answer to that is, is what the idols look like. And so we, t- we have a hard time seeing those things for what they are. Um, A.W. Tozer, who um, has a lot of great ideas about Um, idolatry, are all coming under the the heading of um, the holiness of God. But I want to read this quote for you out um, out of his book that says this, Let us beware, lest we in our pride accept the erroneous notion that idolatry consists only in the kneeling before visible objects of adoration. So he said, don't think that in your chronological snobbery, in your enlightened state, that you only see idolatry when somebody is literally bowing before some idol and thinking that is the only manifestation of idolatry. That civilized people are somehow free from this truth because it's not true. If you just look around in the, the, the things in our city, in the, in the things in our world that culture embraces, that they are trying to matter more. They're trying to find hope or satisfaction or meaning or identity in those things. That is what idolatry looks like today. And he says, uh, eventually, the result of this is you make the exchange that Paul argues for in Romans chapter one, basically through three, is this, that the fundamental exchange is that you take that hole that only God is meant to fill and you fill it with creation itself instead of the creator. And that's that's the swap that happens. So whatever it is that you're filling the whole word, the, the, that hole with is something fundamentally other than God. And so you, you make... Uh, the, the wrong decisions about that, and you fill them with things that uh, fill that hole with things that can never satisfy. And so, bearing God's image in this sense is supposed to give us this not just awareness, but then the ability to hope for the thing that will actually fulfill us. But idolatry is only a symptom then of that, that truth and that, that problem, which is this we, we are desperately longing for satisfaction, and, and you might think that idolatry is far away from you. But I guarantee you, um, my hope is that by the end of today, that you would see idolatry for what it is, instead of just saying, "Well, that's what Athens is like, or that's what culture is like, or that's what it is to live today." And and by doing that, you're sort of dismissing the the the, the, the 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 scary reality that we engage in idolatry without even noticing it a lot of times. And so it says Paul is looking at this, and his spirit is provoked within him. This is the um this is the same word that that um, was used when Paul and Barnabas split ways. That it, like, it's a, it's a, a, a almost a, a, a reflexive reaction to what happens. He sees this and he's disgusted by it. He, he, his, his, he's, he's put um, out by seeing how sad it is that these people are without hope. And there, whatever he can see, whatever it is that he lays his eyes on, are things that don't hold any hope. It's full of idols. the The idea is that it's totally awash no matter where he looks. Chesterton uh, said this, that um, if man ceases to worship God, he doesn't cease to worship nothing. He worships everything. Okay? So if you take God out of the equation, you're not you're not um, agnostic in that sense, or atheistic. You're just putting other things in that role. And so you become an idolater with anything that you can find. So the question is, what do you see? Are you actually seeing idols in your life? It says... As a result of this, he's going to respond to what he sees by going and he's reasoning. So he goes in the synagogue, which is where he can always start if he can. And so he goes to the Jews and to the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. So there's two places. He goes to the people that should know better. That's A, okay? he see, he goes to the people that should know better and he reasons with them. And then he takes his argument to the public. And he says, look, you guys are are missing it. You're, you're worshiping things that don't matter. And so he reasoned. But listen, he, he doesn't go about making his case by tearing down the idols physically. Like he doesn't go deface them or, or try to hide them or set them on fire, right? So there's a right way to go about making the case for God. And in the public sphere, with people who should know better or shouldn't know better, the, the same principle applies. You don't do it by physically tearing things down. You are equipped to tear things down but you're equipped to tear them down with truth. You are equipped with the ability to tear down every lofty argument and stronghold with the word of God. And so he goes and he reasons. That's why it's okay to go outside of an abortion clinic and, and, and say what's true about life, but it's not okay to firebomb the abortion clinic. That won't solve the issue, right? So there's a right way and a wrong way to go about things. And so the... the um, the, the thing is, that Paul does is he takes the argument not from um, just the sense of, well, I hope that other people will come to the place um, where, where I'm at seeking truth. He takes the truth into the realm wherever anybody is. There's um, the latest research, unfortunately, shows that 47% of professing evangelicals. Now, the word in itself is frustrating because when you hear the statistic, you're gonna be like, how do those things match up? 47% of professing evangelicals say that it is wrong to try to convert people to Christianity. Right? It's wrong to share the gospel, to try and give them the truth. Now, how does that pair with the idea of being evangelical, which is essentially proselytizing and trying to convert people? But nonetheless, the problem that we come to is, well, I don't want to judge them, or I don't want to make them feel judged, which is the exact opposite of what you're told to do. You're supposed to judge with right judgment. To discern the difference between truth and error. Who is and who is not right. And so you're supposed to go and address those things with truth and love. So engagement happens in the world, with the world. Why? Because that's where the world is. You have to go in the marketplaces. You have to go where people are at. You have to take the truth of God on the turf of the world. And so that's exactly what Paul's doing. But it says, Some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say. So um, I'm going to just give you just a quick overview of who the Epicureans were and who the Stoics were and that's going to um, benefit you for next week as we kind of come to Paul's real response to these two philosophical ideas. So the Epicureans essentially are a people who hold um, pleasure as the highest good. And and um, it's not total debauchery or hedonism. It is the sense that to, to experience life in a, in a way that is um, good or pleasurable is the most that you can do, and they're essentially deists. And a deist means um, that they believe in the fact that there could be a god or gods, but that those gods are not really doing anything in in the world in life. They're not personal. They don't they don't really interact in any real sense of the word. So they're deists in that sense. And their highest good is then to just experience pleasure if they can. That's the governing principle. Okay. Now this is. Uh, sort of the exact opposite of the Stoic, which is Stoic is um, somebody, like you might hear this word sometimes, it's describing somebody's demeanor or their disposition, which is very, they're very Stoic, right? Which is, means they're sort of like unchanged by the world. But for the Stoic, the highest good or the virtue is to do one's duty. Now they also want to experience pleasure, and they think that the governing thing in the universe is is um, the logos, which is, which is knowledge or logic. And, and so these These principles are out there. And if you can know them and live by them, that things like emotions and good and bad experiences will not affect you so long as you know and abide by the logic of the universe. The deep, deep irony of them searching for the thing that governs the universe as the logos is that's exactly what John says in John 1 when he says that the word, the logos, became flesh and he dwelt among us. That is the idea of God's wisdom and knowledge, his purposes, his plans, all wrapped up in Christ, came as a human being. So the Stoics believe that, and you, you would be familiar with the, the Stoic philosophy of life in the serenity prayer. You guys know that one? It's, it's, it's often the 12-step program, which is... Uh, is uh, um, God, or whatever your higher being is, grant, grant me the uh, courage to change the things that I can, the, uh, the, the, no, the peace to uh, accept what I cannot, and the wisdom to know the difference. There it was. Okay? So there's the idea of the wisdom that governs all things, but the courage to do the things that you can do and, and hopefully experience good things. Uh, and in effect change where you can, but to just basically abide by whatever comes, comes, and you just sort of are the stone in the stream of water going over you, okay? So this is who, who Paul's um, conversing with in the marketplace. And so they kind of come, and they're asking this question, well, what does this babbler have to say? Like, what is it that he has, that he's, he's bringing to our ears? And this word for babbler is, is a very, um, it's derogatory in nature. It's, it means something like a seed picker. And so what they see as Paul's presentation of how life really works and what life is really about. They, it looks like he's picking pieces from different philosophies and he's mushing them together. And so they call him a babbler. And so the truth about philosophy is that it takes what, it, once you remove God from the equation and you try to put the puzzle back together, it's going to look kind of wonky. And then when somebody actually brings the picture of the puzzle to you and says, it actually, is supposed to look like this, that looks like, total confusion because you've pieced something else together that doesn't that doesn't comport with what's actually true. And so that's what's happened in philosophy. So what Paul's actually saying to them sounds like foolishness. But Paul's actually just telling them the truth. And they think that he is preaching some foreign divinities, which is sort of interesting. This is literally they they think he's preaching two different gods, Jesus and the resurrection. The the Greek word for resurrection is anastasis, which is uh uh was a female goddess and so they're thinking that he's coming and he's saying look life is about this, this, this god named Jesus and this other one named the resurrection but that's obviously not what he's trying to comport and so they're kind of intrigued by this because he, he's saying this is something important that they should pay attention to and so they invite him to come. It says they took him and brought him to the, now it depends how you want to put the emphasis. I've been putting it on the A but some people say Areopagus but sometimes it's Areopagus and it's however you want to say it But that's what it is. So the Arapagus is literally the high point in the city, but it's also like the city council. If you want to think about it, it is like um, it's the high place that's afforded the authority to say what kind of things comport with truth and what kind of things don't. Um, We have these today. If you just kind of think, what occupies the authoritarian places in culture? Maybe they're um, institutions like colleges or just um, anything that you would think of produces experts or courts or anything of the like, we have these same kinds of things. And the question that you ought to ask yourself is if those people are supposed to be experts and they're the ones saying, hey, these, these are the things that we should endorse or teach, these are the things that are true and these things that are not, what is it that matters then is what they think about what is true and what's not. And so Paul's going to this place to present what is true, but they're vetting it through a filter that is preexistent. And it doesn't allow for the kinds of things that Paul is bringing to them. And this is true of a lot of the institutions also in our culture that say, hey, you can't say that or that can't possibly be true. Just think about the idea of like, well, science says that this is, you know, how creation happened or this is how, you know, evolution happened. Something like that, that it's just under the authority of the experts. And if you bring something outside of that, it's run through their filter and then dismissed summarily. But Paul is invited to come and share here and so he goes and says, for you bring some strange things to our ears and we wish to know what these things mean. So Paul, if you are bringing something that is true, we want to know what your are babbling is actually after. Like, are you just bringing new gods that we can add to our already existent and very deep pantheon or are you going to bring something, something else? It says, now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except for telling and hearing something new. In this, they're telling on themselves, if you think about it this way. That, that search that is in our hearts, that we're constantly groping about, trying to find something that's worthwhile to put in there, and the fact that we are always looking for something new tells you what about the things that you've already discovered. They're not actually doing the thing that they promised they would do. So you want something new. Well, maybe this thing will be the next thing that will be the thing, but it never is. And so you're constantly in a, uh, a search to fill this hole and scratch this itch that can't be done. And the Athenians and the foreigners are going to the supposedly place of intellectual truth and philosophy that can answer this question. Well, here's the thing, and it's never delivering. So Paul arrives. He's standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. If you, if you rewind back to verse 16, it says he goes to Athens, he's waiting there, and he sees all the idols. And then here in verse 22, it says he perceives. And, and that's the disconnect that we often make. We see lots of things, but we don't always perceive what they, what's behind them or why people are doing the things that they're doing. We just kind of dis, dismiss it as, well, I guess that's, that's what they do or that's what they're about or why they're like that instead of connecting it to that deeper truth that's true across humanity. You don't have to wonder, was well, that true for that person and not true for me? It's true across humanity that everybody is trying to fill that same hole. And so then when you see the manifestation of that, it's an easy connecting of the dots. Well, that's exactly what they're trying to do. They're trying to fill that hole with that thing. So Paul perceives this, and he connects the dots for them. I perceive that you are very religious. Some people have said that maybe this is kind of a, he's trying to give them a, an attaboy. There's no attaboy here. This is, a, this is the only time this word is used. And it literally uh, has the word demon in it. It says, you, you understand uh, the gods of demons, or you make gods of demons, essentially that. That is your practice of religion. You, you are devout in the sense that you understand the doctrines of demons. And that's what he's calling all of their idols. You are very religious. And so we think that oftentimes people that are religious don't need the gospel. But that's exactly not true. If you're religious in any way other than under God himself, then you're practicing the doctrine of demons. You're devoting your worship to demons. So we tell them, I see that you're, you're very religious. And the tragedy of this is that there's so much worship going on, but none of it is directed in the right place. He's gone to the synagogue with the Jews who should know better. And yet it seems like they've not rebuked this practice. They're just sitting in the inundation, awash in all of the idolatry, and not saying, you're practicing something that is false. We have the God. They haven't at least gotten to... We believe in God, whether or not they've gotten to the Messiah yet. So he's gone to the synagogue, and that hasn't been uh, a bastion of truth, apparently, in this culture. And so what happens, though, is when it's, when it's so common, we just say, well, that's normal. That's, that's what it is to live today. To be Christian seems to be uh, an important distinction to make across from other things that seem to be non-religious, But the truth is, whether you're atheistic or whether you're agnostic or you're some other common um, political ideology, things like communism and Marxism, those have faith elements to them. Those are a practice of religious devotion to some ideals. So the gospel is not just for all the heathens on the outside. It is for the heathens on the outside, but it's also for sometimes for the heathens on the inside, right? For the people that think they're religious and think that their religion is right, but it's not true, and so that any Anything that is not worshiping God in truth is engaging in idolatry, and that's what Tozer had to say. Don't think that because you're not prostrating before some small trinket or some thing that you're not engaged in this act. It's anything less than true worship and true knowledge of the true God. So Paul says this, You're very religious, but as I passed along and I observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. Now he's he's loading up, but I'm gonna I'm gonna use that as the statement for this morning. This is his declaration: what you are worshiping is unknown. I'm going to. I'm I'm not only am I making it clear that you're worshiping idols and things that are unknown. I want to tell you the problem with that. And he goes on to reason through that. So this. This, uh, this altar to an unknown God that, that Paul actually observes in Athens. Um, it's been speculated a lot, but there's actually a story behind how this came to be. So Epimenides, who was just a philosopher who lived in the 6th century, um, lived in Athens. It says, there was a plague It went throughout Greece, and the Greeks thought that they must have offended one of their gods, and so they began to make sacrifices, but the plague was not not, uh, fixed. It wasn't going away, and so they figured they must have offended a god that they don't know about. And so Epimenides had the bright idea. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a bunch of hungry sheep, and we're going to release them into the countryside, and wherever that sheep lays down, it will be a sign from the gods that that uh, that's a holy place, and uh, if, they, if they lay down in a place uh, that's near a temple, we'll name that, that altar, we'll sacrifice to that God. But if they lay down in some new place, well, now they need to know about this unknown God. Well, now you have a way to sacrifice to an unknown God, and you would have then an altar to an unknown God. They figured a uh, hungry sheep is not just going to lay down anywhere, he's going to go grazing somewhere. So the first place he lays down. So it says they released all these sheep, and they went, and they ended up having altars everywhere. And then... Lo and behold, this sheep lays down, and they kill this sheep, and now they have an altar to the unknown God. The unknown God for us is, 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 is engaging our hearts in that same kind of search where we go, I don't know what will fix this problem, but surely something will fix this problem. And when, when something catches my fancy, like, that'll be the thing that I serve, and the, in order that I can start to fill that hole in my heart, the persistent nagging problem of dissatisfaction is what gives birth to idolatry. so Paul, um, John Calvin observed that the heart is an idol factory. That it produces idols. When we when we studied through Exodus, and we, we talked about the problem of uh, idols, and that was one of the commands: do not make any you know, images, all that. And then we find out that even after they're, um, the Israelites are um, removed from Egypt, and even after they get out of slavery and God's done provision for them and he saved them, all that, blah, blah, And they, they get there and they create a golden calf. They create a, a something. And they don't create the calf to worship the calf. They create the calf to worship God. They say, Aaron, make for us something that we can worship. We want to worship God. And Aaron says, well, give me all your gold, right? And they make this calf and they engage in worship. And then we find out later in the rest of the prophets and through the Psalms that although the idolaters were taken out of Egypt with idolatry, you can remove the idolater from the temple, but you can't remove it from their heart. Because even in the absence of one, they'll just manufacture and create a new one. And we get, we get fixated on the little trinket that's coming down the assembly line. And we look at that thing and we go, oh, there's my problem, There's my problem, but the next one is coming down the line too. That thing is not your problem, whatever the next little statue coming down the line is. It's way up the assembly line in the factory that's stamping those things out. And the fuel that stamps those things out is the dissatisfaction from a fundamentally discontented heart. Because it's always going to pump out a new thing. It's always trying to fill that hole with the next thing. Idolatry is not specifically the desire for the idol, and that's where we make the disconnect. We think, well, I don't don't idolize gold or money or, okay, something like that, right? It's the question below that that really matters. What are you trying to satisfy? So the God is really something else. It's really something like, I, I want to avoid pain. I want to have pleasure. And so we see the Epicurean philosophy manifesting in our own Heart. I don't want to experience hard things. I want to experience good things. And so I go about doing all that I can to only experience good things because I'm fearful of experiencing bad things. right? And so from that discontented heart, we manufacture new things and we um, put, throw ourselves into them to try and satisfy that um, itch that we've noticed and we've created. And so the idol isn't just merely the thing that holds the representation or that promise of what can satisfy the idol just represents that power. In Colossians 3:5, one of many scriptures that just command us to avoid idolatry, it says put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. If you think about the idea of like um, <laughs> evil desire is not a it's not a compound term talking about one kind of bad thing. It is desire that is evil. Anything that you set desire on that you ought not to. So that could be anything, right? If you desire something in an evil way, that makes idols anything. So the form doesn't matter so much as the thing that's producing the idol. It's a heart itself. And covetousness, which is having what you do not have and seeking and doing things to acquire what you do not have. And Paul calls that idolatry. James um, says, "You, you... you have not because you ask not. Because when you ask, you ask because you want to spend it on selfish pleasures. You're trying to only satisfy the thing in your heart, in your life, that is um, causing you discontentment. And So the gospel of idolatry is a false gospel that says fulfillment or satisfaction is found in this thing. And whatever that thing is, if it's not the true and living God, it's the wrong answer. So the only thing that you can do with that thing if you find any satisfaction in it, is engage in idolatry. That's the only, that's the only uh, mode or only vehicle that you can travel with that particular thing. Idolatry always reaches in in the attempt to reach up. It says, I, I I'm, I'm needy of something, but instead of reaching to the place, the source that I can actually get it, I need, to, I reach inside because the hole is in me, and so we're. It's like cotton candy. <laughs> It doesn't matter how much of you, you eat, you're really not consuming that much substance, right? And it doesn't matter how much of the idol you consume or how hard you serve it and how hard you run and what you sacrifice to it, it won't satisfy. I know I've said that a million times this morning, but hear it again, okay? It cannot satisfy. Idolatry flows in reverse from what true worship is because God, God gives to us life and spirit and all things, and then we give that back to him. But idolatry takes from something that doesn't give. And it tries to satisfy with something that's not being received. So all you're doing is putting further longing and further yearning and a deeper hole into the hole that already exists, which makes the problem all the more difficult. I don't think the church has done a good job of making the gospel of of Christ distinct from common idolatry. Because we say things like, well, do you desire this thing? Because Jesus could get that for you. And now Jesus becomes the idol that we worship instead of serving Christ alone because it's God, because of who he is, he becomes the means to get what we want. I think for us, um, it's intangible. And so my my hope this morning is to to connect the dots between seeing and perceiving in your life, not by um, listing all the myriad of ways that you might be having idolatry in your life. I want to reduce it to the simplest term I can. So it's simply this. Without God, so without assumption, without God, aside from God, if I remove God from the equation without God, am I satisfied in anything? Just stop there for a second. Before you were aware there was a God of the universe, before you heard the gospel, before any of that, if you remove God from the equation, you sought satisfaction in many things. You found some level of satisfaction in some of those things. But then you went back because it really didn't satisfy in a real kind of, I was thirsty, but now I'm not thirsty anymore, kind of way. You were okay, and then, well, now I'm more thirsty than I was before, right? And so you you keep going back to that thing. When you meet God, and when God fills your heart, it should satisfy that itch. And so that without God in the equation, you should not find satisfaction in that thing. Are there persistent things in your life that you still find satisfaction in, that if, if you had never heard the name of Jesus or God, you would still... Use that for satisfaction. If the answer to anything in that equation is yes, that's idolatry. Do I hope in anything? Again, before you met Christ, before you knew who God is and what he offers you, was my hope in anything other than God? If if God was not part of the equation, if you said, if I could only have this thing, if I was only able to not have this thing, if whatever you, the hope that you set out there before you, if that can be realized without God, that's idolatry. And the last one is my identity in anything. So this, these don't have to be mutually exclusive. Sometimes they're a manifestation of many of those circles overlapping. But it, the, re, the, the reduction is always the same. Am I trying to be something without God? Like, do I, I want to matter more than My name allows me to. So I invest my life in these things. I need to find my identity in what I do or what I accomplish or what other people think of me. And God never enters the equation. These kinds of idols um, or this kind of uh, perception or question turns our heart to the factory instead of the assembly line. Okay? Because if I just go, well, do you, love God? do you love money more than God? And you put those two things on the scale, we're gonna know I love God more, right? Now, if you didn't have God, but you had all the money in the world, would you be happy? Some of you are like, yeah, for a little while. And th- that's the problem. Because you've not rewound it to the fact that you're looking for satisfaction. And that's, that's the fundamental draw. So the truth is, a heart that is dissatisfied is the fundamental issue that produces idolatry. 1 John five twenty one, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Yeah, it's, this is the closing, this is the very last line of 1 John. And uh, John writes the, the whole letter. He says, I, I'm writing these things so that you would be assured of, of who Jesus was and all that he's accomplished. And then it's like, it's almost like a PS. It's a postscript at the end of this. By the way, little children. And this isn't like a, it's almost not as affectionate as it appears, because he's, he's, he's kind of saying, treat your trust in God as little children do and keeping yourself from idolatry. And because little kids, um, they, like, they like little trinkets, little things, and they make them happy, right? But my, my kids don't go searching for those things on their own. They come to the provider of those things. Little children do that. They know better. They go to the person that actually provides the satisfaction, Right? Older people that think they know better, they've lived a little bit of life and maybe they have some philosophy about what would be better to circumvent the provider to just go straight to the thing that I want, don't live as little children. And they don't keep themselves from idols because they search to satisfy themselves. So this little admonition, little children, or as little children, keep yourselves from idols. Go to the source. We're commanded to flee from idolatry because there is no compatibility between us serving God or, uh, yes, serving God and also serving things that are not God and giving to things, giving to creation what God alone should have. There is no agreement between the temple of God and idols. And so we're commanded then to flee from those things, to get rid of them, to identify what they are and, and, and rid our lives of them. That, that list that was in Colossians, sexual immorality, impurity, um, everything that is earthly evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. And so that's not something that can be ripped out from the outside, like as though I could come and give you this list and help you with that. But what I can do, hopefully for you and with you and in the community, is what Paul does, which is to come with foreign eyes and look at the landscape and say, look, I, I see that what you're engaged in here is is not worship, it's idolatry. And you rooting those things and connecting them to that, that truth, though we try to squirm around it and avoid it, that I am finding satisfaction in these things. I am finding hope in these things. I am finding my identity in these other things, because in a moment, yeah, God's always gonna you're always gonna justify and weigh out the scale. Yeah, well, God means more. He's better, but you're still you're still persisting in holding fast to this isle. You're still carrying it with you out of Egypt. You're still asking to worship God through this thing that you actually care about more. So these things are not cured until you find your satisfaction in God. So I'm going to leave you with that tension. (laughs) Is it's not mine to resolve. Now, next week is um, the specific addresses to these philosophies and the truth about how God is distinctly different than how we conceive of um, and how the world conceives of what's worth worshiping. So let me pray for us this morning.